morning, brothers and sisters. Why don't you go ahead and grab uh, your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 12, if you will. And we are continuing through this series entitled Bible 2020. And let me go ahead and just get this out of the way. I really am thankful to be with you today. I couldn't wait to be here and preach through this section of Scripture. It's one of my favorite sections of Scripture. But as of about 48 hours ago, I didn't have a voice. And it's been going on kind of all week. And uh, thankful for the gift of antibiotics and the prayers of God's people. So I know it's going to sound a little scratchy this morning. I'm not in pain. I'm okay. Don't worry. We'll be okay. And let me just get this out of the way. Uh, I'm well aware there is an essential oil that will help me. All right. I've, I've been approached and told that by everyone. I'm good to go. So I just want to get that out of the way this morning. I'm really excited about what our church is jumping into in 2020 and really hope you're a part of it. If you're a guest and you don't know, we've kind of taken the challenge as a church to begin in Genesis and read through, teach through, preach through, study through the entire Bible this year in 2020. And really hope you're a part of that. There are a ton of resources available online for you. Uh, one is a reading plan. You can, again, get a paper copy out here or go online. But I'm really curious to find out how many of you would say, just by show of hands, that you are going to say, man, I'm going to attempt to read through the whole Bible this year with my church family? How many of you guys would just say that? And isn't that encouraging? Just be encouraged by that. We get to do this together and press on in this together and just watch what God's going to do as we immerse ourselves in the pages of Scripture. Uh, really quick, one of the opportunities for you that ties into this is we've been doing this for about a year, but on Wednesday night is something called Behind the Message it's at 6.30, and we literally go behind the message, go a little bit deeper into Sunday's message. If you don't have a place to connect yet, it's great for you. Also, we've started a new behind the message that will take place uh, during the 11 o'clock hour. There will be one for the adults and one for our college and young professionals as well. So a lot of opportunities for you to continue to study and walk through God's Word together. Check out uh, the website. All right. So Book of Genesis, that's where we started last week. You can find your place there in Genesis chapter 12. Let me give you just a quick review as we're reading through together. Book of Genesis is a book of origins. It's where everything began. Uh, we know from Genesis where we came from, why we exist. We know why the world is in the state it is in. And the, Bible, the book of Genesis presents great hope that God has a plan to redeem this fallen world. We saw the flood we saw the fall, we saw the creation, we saw the scattering as we ended last week in Genesis 11. If you remember, that place called the Tower of Babel and God scattered, confused the languages and scattered the people of the earth, making up the nations of the earth. And as they were scattered, they were messed up people. As they scattered, they were fallen people. All these nations were self-willed. They formed their own self-religion, their own self-determination. They were in need of redemption of a Savior. So when we come to Genesis chapter 12, it is a major hinge point in your Bible. The Bible's focus goes from the scattering of the nations then to become single-focused on a nation, nation of Israel. You follow that really from Genesis 12 all the way up into the New Testament, and then God expands his focus to the church made up of Jew and Gentile alike through really the end of human history. So it's a major turning point when we come to Genesis chapter 12. Now, I've got a question for you this morning. 
as you, as you think about the activity of God in your life, as you think about the activity of God as we look in the pages of Scripture, as we walk through these stories of the Bible, what is God's pattern of working in the lives of individuals? Does God routinely work through angels? Well, occasionally, but that's not the norm. Does God usually work through raw, supernatural, man, just power that he drops into the situation? He can, he does, but it's not the norm. What I want you to see this morning is that God most often works in the lives of people through other people. God's pattern for carrying out his purposes and his plan in the lives of people is that he raises up, equips, and uses other people. God's using you in the lives of people. God's used people in your life. So as we walk through these stories of the Old Testament, we see particular people God calls out to accomplish his purposes in the lives of other people. Now, as we come to Genesis 12, we see a particular character by the name of Abram. God is going to change his name to Abraham later on. Now, Abram is the beginning of a group known as the patriarchs, the fathers, if you will. Genesis is about a man named Abraham, has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a bunch of kids. One of them's name's Joseph. These guys make up who are known as the patriarchs. The first patriarch is a man named Abraham, and we're going to look at him this morning. So let's begin, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. God intervenes into human history, and he begins with a man, a man named Abraham. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, go from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. God calls out this man Abraham. He speaks to this man Abraham. Why Abraham? Was Abraham just a whole lot better than everybody else? Absolutely not. This is an exercise of God's free, sovereign choice. He calls out Abraham says, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a promise. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. It's a promise. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, Abraham. Here we are 3,800 years later still talking about Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. And so you, Abraham, shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I'm going to curse those, or those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I just need you to know, if you don't already know, if you've grown up in church at all, you, you've heard of Abraham, you've sung the song, Father Abraham, all of that. Abraham's a vital character in the history of God's redemption of the world. This man, Abraham, is mentioned in your Bible almost 300 times. So who is this character? What is this promise he's received? Why does it matter to us? 
One of the things we know about Abraham is Abraham is often used as a picture of faith. What does it look like to walk by faith? So this morning I want to show you two things really quick. What is this promise Abraham received? And then we're going to look at the faith that Abraham puts on display. All right? So Abraham is given a promise. We just read it. This promise is carried throughout the whole Bible. Throughout the Bible is going to be referred back to this Abrahamic covenant, it's called. This promise that God gives to Abraham has four main parts. All right, really quick. This matters to you and me. Here's the parts of this promise. Number one, God says, Abraham, in verse uh, tw- or chapter 12, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, we know years later that that nation becomes the nation of Israel. God promises, go out, Abraham, look up to the sky, as vast as the stars of the heavens are, that's how many descendants you're going to have. He says in another place in Genesis, go to the sea, count all the grains of sand, and that is symbolic, if you will, to all the descendants that are going to come from you, Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. Problem number one with God's promise. Abraham has no children. Abraham, when he receives this promise, is 75 years old. Abraham has a wife who is physically unable, due to barrenness, to bear children. And yet God, in his sovereignty, chooses this man to make his promise. The reason is, God wants to make no doubt whatsoever. He carries out his purposes through fallen creatures, fallen humans, so that he receives the glory. Abraham's a broken dude. Abraham has weaknesses. Abraham has issues. Don't you read your Bible and say, oh man, this incredible dude, Abraham, he does show great faith. Abraham's a messed up guy. God in his grace chooses to call out Abraham to use. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. He does that. He says, I'm going to set this nation in a particular land. He says this land, Exodus 15, or Genesis 15, 18, you don't have to turn there. He says, on the day the Lord made the covenant to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, modern day Israel, this land of Canaan, God said, it's going to be yours and it's going to be your people. We see that carried out century after century and not caused just a little debate even today. He said, also, you are going to receive divine blessing, Abraham. I'm going to protect you. He says, I'm going to make your name great. You are going to be a blessing. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Problem with this promise. Abraham's a nobody. He's a nobody. He lives in the middle of nowhere. He's never accomplished anything significant. God chooses to use the weak things of the world to manifest his greatness. God chooses this nobody. And here we are, 3,800 years later, thanking God for a man like Abraham. But most of all, what God chose to do through this human being, Abraham. So he makes this promise to a man who is childless. He makes this promise to a man whose wife is barren. He makes this promise to a man who is really a nobody and transforms the world through this man, Abraham. Now, that's the promise that God gave to Abraham. Secondly, I want you to see, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time, is the faith that Abraham displays. The faith that Abraham displays. 
Throughout the Bible, the Bible talks much about faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Hebrews declares, you want to walk with God, want to honor God, and please God, it's faith. It's this trust, it's this dependence on God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now listen to me. Faith is much discussed. You hear much about it. And let me be very clear, faith is highly abused. You and I don't get to define faith. We try. Plenty of teachers on television want to define it for you. Let me tell you what faith is not, and then we'll talk about what faith is. Faith is not something I generate. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, faith is a gift from God. It's a gift. You demonstrate faith, it's God's grace. It's a gift. Number two, faith, biblical faith, biblical transforming, walking with God kind of faith is not positive thinking. Hey, I got a sticker. I got it on my refrigerator. It says you just got to believe I can do anything I want. No, you can't. You can do what God calls you to do. You can do what God empowers you to do. Faith is not something you generate, and faith is not positive thinking. Faith also is not based on your feelings. I guarantee you, Abraham does not feel like the father of many nations. He's 75. His wife is barren. But his faith is rooted in what God has declared to be true. And what God promises he will do. Faith is not presumption. Presumption is, well, you know what? I'm going to do this and just trust that God is, work, is going to work it out. That's absolutely true, and you can do that if he's declared it to be so. If he hasn't declared it to be so, you're walking on a very thin wire of your own presumption. Huge difference. Faith is not rooted in feelings. It's not presumption. And faith is not about the amount. It is not about you working up more faith. If you only had more faith, you could have a Maserati. If you only have more faith, you could have anything you want. It's not about the amount of your faith. It is always about the object of your faith. Who and what is your faith centered in? God speaks to Abraham. God reveals himself to Abraham. The Bible declares this to be so in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So here's your big truth that's going to guide this message this morning. As we walk through the Old Testament, we're not always going to have a big truth because sometimes it's more of an example. I want us to have a big truth this morning. Verse 17 of Romans says this, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Here's your big truth. Ready? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. You don't work it up. You don't generate it. It is the living word of God that he has spoken. The spirit of God takes that in our lives and generates redeeming, saving, kind of walking with Jesus' faith. And by the way, a faith that endures to the end. That's rooted always in what God declares 
to be true. One of my prayers for us as a family, as we walk through the pages of Scripture, that your faith will be much more robust, much more centered in the person of Jesus, much more active, much stronger, because you know the God of your faith better a year from now than you do now. As he makes himself known to you through his word. So Abraham is a picture of faith. The Bible declares what faith is. The Bible declares where faith comes from and gives us a picture of it in the person of Abraham. So go back, chapter 12, verse 1, very quick. Let's read it again. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, the land I'm going to show you. Abraham, leave everything that's familiar to you. Abraham, pick up everything that's comfortable to you, everything that you know. I know you don't like change, Abraham. You're going to go to somewhere, and I'm going to show you. I'm not even going to tell you all, I don't, I'm not going to tell you all the details yet, Abraham. Trust me. What does Abraham do? Verse 4. So Abraham went. As the Lord had told him. What is a picture of faith? I'm going to give you three big ideas that's going to flow out of this. Here's big idea number one. Genuine faith hears what God is speaking from his word, and obeys. Obeys. Abraham could say all day, hey, I got faith. He could even sing songs about it. I got faith. That's fine. Until he obeys, his faith is not brought to a place where it has a demonstration. Genuine faith will always have a genuine demonstration. We're not saved by faith. Don't confuse it. But faith that doesn't have a demonstration, faith that is not seeable, James says in James chapter 2, that faith can't save you. Even James says in chapter 2 of the book of James, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. And he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, genuine biblical faith will have outward demonstrations. We get a ton of those demonstrations here in Scripture. One of the reasons it's vital to walk with a faith family is to watch genuine faith lived out in the lives of your brothers and sisters. I got the Bible to look at and I got the body of Christ to look at to see what faith looks like when it's lived out in my brother as he's going through difficult times or God calls him to do something different or he doesn't understand why this is happening. That's why you need a body of faith around you to see genuine faith lived out. And genuine faith will always be lived out. It will have a demonstration. You have that life of Abraham. We are redeemed by this kind of faith alone. Abraham was redeemed by this. It tells us in Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6, speaking to Abraham or about Abraham, it says, And he, God, brought Abraham outside, said to him, Look toward the heaven, the number of the stars, if you are able to number them, he said, God speaking, so shall your offspring be. One of the things you'll see in Genesis, God has to repeat this promise over and over and over and over and over to Abraham, just like me, just like you. I got to be reminded of the promises of God over and over and over and over. Here he says, Abraham, do you remember the promise I gave you? It's been like 10 years now. I told you your descendants are going to be as great as the sea, or as the sand on the seashore. And then verse 6 of Genesis 15, and he, Abraham, believed. 
He exercises saving faith in the promise of God. And what was the promise? He counted it to him as righteousness, the promise that an offspring was going to come from Abraham who was going to be the redeemer of the world, the Messiah. Abraham placed faith in God's promise of a Messiah to come. You and I place faith in the Messiah who has already been here and will come again. There's not multiple ways people are made right with God in the Bible. You know that, right? Well, they killed a lamb. They wore this. They did that. No, no. One way, faith in God and his promises. Looking ahead to those promises or looking back to those promises. Same way throughout the Bible. Same way throughout history. Abraham walks by faith. Abraham is redeemed by faith. And he walks by faith throughout Scripture. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Hebrews gives us a commentary and says, All this by Abraham, doing it by faith. So faith hears the word of God and faith obeys, acts, trusts. You see that in the life of Abraham. Now secondly, I want to show you something else about Abraham. Second big idea is this, not only does faith hear and obey, but genuine faith falters and endures. Now I've got to tell you, one of the reasons I love walking through and reading through the stories of the Bible is because you can't make this kind of stuff up. C.S. Lewis said the reason he believed, humanly speaking, that the Bible was true because myths always make great heroes of their characters. The Bible says, no, they're broken, fallible people. The Bible presents to you heroes, if you will, who are messed up men and messed up women. Because ultimately the hero of the Bible is not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is pointed to by these broken, messed up people. I'm thankful when I read the life of a man like Abraham. Because as you read these chapters, you see a man whose faith is real. It's genuine. It's demonstrated. But man, there are times that his faith falters. And genuine faith, biblically speaking will falter, but it will always endure. It will always endure to the end because it's real. So you look at a man like Abraham. Let me just give you a few examples that encourage me. Genesis chapter 12, after he's received the promise, after he has stepped out, after he's come to the land of Canaan, God's, there's a famine and he goes to the land of Egypt. In Egypt, he and his wife Sarah are there. They're going to try to find a place of refuge. His wife is a knockout. She's very pretty, even at her older age. She's very attractive. He takes her down to Egypt, and Abraham realizes, wait a minute, they're going to really like my wife. I'm going to be in the way, and they're going to kill me to have Sarah. So I got an idea of how I'm going to help God out. Sarah, why don't you tell everyone you're my sister? And, we, and that's kind of funny, and Abraham was making that all that up, but then what that means for you, Sarah, is you're just going to have to endure whatever happens to you at that point. 
because you're not going to have the protection of the idea of me being your husband. When you read the story, though, you see she has the protection of God who intervenes even in Abraham's mess. Pharaoh, the leader, takes Sarah into his harem as a wife, and God speaks to him and says, she's already married to another man. You give her back to who he belongs. God honors marriage. God honors Sarah. God intervenes even in Abraham's mess up. Aren't you glad and thankful that God's grace supersedes our stupidity? You can tweet that out if you want. I mean, that's pretty good. <laughs> Abraham does something just stupid. Abraham, what are you doing? God intervenes because of the faithfulness of God. He continues to walk with Abraham, continues to rebuke Abraham. There are consequences to what Abraham does, but Abraham's faith continues. Then you get to chapter 15. Abraham decides he's going to help God out again. It's been several years now since the promise. Sarah's not getting any younger. Abraham's not getting any younger. We're waiting for this son that you promised to us. Where's this son? You come to Genesis 15, verse 3. Abraham said, Behold, Lord, you've given me no offspring. Can I just translate that? Where's your promise, God? Abraham's faith begins to become accusatory to God. God, you promised me a son, and it's been almost 10 years now. Hey, you on a son. What's going on? So Abraham says, how about this? How about a member of my household will be my heir? In other words, he had this man named Eleazar who was a part of his household. It's a household servant. They functioned almost like a child. He said, I got an idea, God. I'm going to help you out. How about Eleazar? Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, no, no, no. This man will not be your heir. Your very own son who comes from you will be your heir. Abraham, I don't need you to help me out on this. I got it. He again intervenes and keeps Abraham from his own stupidity. Well, it gets even worse. Then you go to Genesis 16. Many years now have passed. That's almost a decade. Sarah's getting frustrated. Abraham's getting frustrated. Is God ever going to come through on what he said he's going to come through? So Sarah has this great idea. 16 verse 3 says, So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, his wife, comes to him, takes Hagar, the Egyptian, who was a servant in their household, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, we, we're intended to kind of be shocked by that a little bit. It was a cultural thing to do in that day. What culture does around us does not always, and I would say almost rarely, determine what is best and is the will of God. Sarah had seen this done around her. She says, Abram, I don't know if we're ever going to have kids. Let's help God out. Here's Hagar, my maid. Why don't you go be with her? Here's what happened. Verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son, which is, by the way, how it's known that the one who couldn't have children was Sarah. Hagar bears a son. Abram called the name of this son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. 
A son is born by their poor decisions, by their trying to help God out. From Ishmael becomes 10 to 12 nations, the Bible says. And even today, the conflict that you and I watch on the news every day is because of this son Ishmael who was born in their fleshly attempts to honor God. The Arab nations came from the son Ishmael. God chooses to bless them, use them in many ways. But he says, that wasn't my plan. Man, Abraham, Abraham does some stupid, crazy things. His faith falters, but it never fails. God disciplines, and aren't you glad? There are consequences to his stupidity and his poor decision, but his faith endures because genuine faith always endures because of God. Through this, Abraham continues to commune with God. Abraham is referred to as a friend of God. And you come to Genesis chapter 17. If, why don't you go and turn there? We'll look at that really quick. He says in Genesis 17, verse 1, 25 years later, 25 years, still waiting on God's promise. Can you imagine? 25 years. Abraham was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him, I'm reading from verse 1, and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me, Abraham, and be blameless. And he reminds him of his covenant again. He says, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. Abram means faithful father. Abraham means father of many nations. He's going to change his name. He says, you will now be called no, no longer Abram, but you're going to be called Abraham. Why does God change his name here? Because what God does in your life and my life is sometimes God takes years to faithfully shape our character to match the calling of God. God is not finished with Abraham. Abraham certainly hasn't arrived, as you're going to see. But God has taught Abraham some things, and God has done a work in Abraham. God will faithfully shape your character to match who you are as a son or daughter of God. He won't finish it in this life, but he will faithfully work toward that. He is growing your character. And by the way, he will take as long as he needs to. And he will do whatever he needs to. And he shapes this man, Abram. And now here, 25 years later, he changes his name to match his calling. Verse chapter 21. Finally, a quarter of a, of a century later, the promise is fulfilled. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the time, I love this, which God had spoken to him. Is God late? God is right on time. Humanly, it doesn't even make sense. Why would you make me wait 25 years for this boy? God is doing things in Abraham, in Sarah, in the future nation of Israel, in the land of Canaan that they can't even imagine. By the way, whenever God makes us wait, he always has the big picture in mind. Always. We can't see the big picture. We see very narrow. Lord, give me a son. Well, at the whole time, God is orchestrating redemption for, for mankind through Abraham. Verse 2 of Genesis 21, Sarah conceived, bore Abraham a son. Verse 3, Abraham called the boy Isaac. 
Abraham was 100 years old, verse 5, when Isaac was born to him. Verse 8, the child grew and was weaned. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Isaac is born. Isaac grows. He's nurtured by these parents. And I want you just to imagine something, parents, moms and dads. Can you imagine the love that, I, that Abraham and Sarah have for this boy? Man, I've waited for this promise. He's now grown. They threw a party when he was weaned. He's growing into this young manhood. This is the gift from God. Thank you, God, for this gift that you've given to us. And with that all as a background, you come to Genesis chapter 22, which is where we're going to spend just the last few minutes together. Look at verse 1, Genesis chapter 22. The Bible says this, after these things, what things? We've just walked through 25 years of the life of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and all God is doing to prepare Isaac and prepare Abraham and Sarah, all that God is doing. It says God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am, Lord. Here's what I want you to see from Genesis chapter 22. We see that faith hears and obeys. We see that faith falters and endures. Thirdly and finally, I want you to see this. Genuine faith is tested. And genuine faith glorifies God. Genuine faith will always be tested and glorifies God. Will God test his children James, the book of James says, if you're being tempted to sin, it is not God. God will never tempt you to sin. God will place you in situations. God will allow things in our life. God will call things from you. God will cause you to surrender things. God will call you to give up things to test your faith. Not so much in Genesis 22 to grow Abraham's faith. That's taken 25 years. He is revealing what is really there. That's what test means. It's like burning metals. It doesn't make the metal better, but when you burn those metals, the true metal is, it rises to the surface. It shows what's there. God will, God will allow, God will cause you and I to walk through whatever is necessary to reveal what's really here for the world to see and for you to know and to ultimately glorify himself. So he says, Abraham, he says, here I am, verse 2. And God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son. I, mean, I, thought, I thought Abraham had another son named Ishmael. What happened here? In the plan of redemption, God declares Isaac to be the only son. As if, watch this, Isaac is the one and only begotten son. Hold on to that. Whom you love, God says. God declares the love that Abraham and Sarah have for this boy. Again, parents, can you imagine the fondness and the place that this boy plays in their life? you got to remember, in Isaac is Abraham's future. In Isaac is Abraham's name. Hey, hello, my name's Abraham. Oh, the father of a multitude. Where's all your kids? Well, you ain't got any. It's pretty embarrassing. 
in Isaac. The son is his name, his identity, his future, his reputation. All that he loves is wrapped up in this boy, Isaac. So take now your son, your only son whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah. We'll say more about that in a minute. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll tell you. Stop right there. There are times you will read through the Bible accounts and you will go, what? Are you telling me that God calls Abraham to offer up his son Isaac back as a sacrifice? That's exactly what God calls Abraham to do. Are you telling me God will call someone to take that which is most precious and instead of, what's this, loving the gift, testing us to see if the gift has replaced our love for the giver? That was good too. If you missed that, I will say that again. God's the giver of all good gifts, but God will continually test us to make sure that the good gifts he entrusts to us never replace him as our place of greatest affection and love. He's the only one that can satisfy your heart. And he loves you enough to continually to purify and test to make sure, are you loving the gifts? Are you loving the giver? That's what he's doing to Abraham. A burnt offering was a picture of total sacrifice. There would be nothing left. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning. That's crazy to me. I imagine a sleepless night maybe at Abraham's house that night. Can you imagine? Can you imagine tossing and turning in bed knowing what God's calling him to do? Or this doesn't make sense. I don't know why you would do this. This sure doesn't fit my plan with this boy. What are you doing? Sun rises, he's up. Says he chopped the wood, saddled his donkey, got two of his young men with him, the servants, and his son Isaac. He cuts the wood. Maybe just need a little fizzle exertion here. He goes out and cuts the wood for the burnt offering. He rose to the place which God had told him. Here's a couple things that strike me. Number one, God speaks. The next morning, Abraham is quick to obey. Wow. Even when he doesn't understand it. I don't fully understand. Genuine faith will exercise costly obedience it's going to cost you but God will so work in our lives to show us in whom or where is my greatest treasure because if your greatest treasure is in anything but King Jesus you will be vastly disappointed he loves you that much verse 4 on the third day so it's a three days journey to this place called Moriah I can imagine what that journey was like. Can you imagine what they're talking about? Where are we going, Dad? Well, we're just, you know, just trust me. It'll all work out. Three days' journey, Abraham lifts up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, now hang with me here. Watch this, verse 5. You guys stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, or your translation may say lad, will go over there. Watch what he says. We're going to worship and then your translation, if it gets it right, says something to the effect, and come back to you again. Or the accurate translation will say, and we will worship, and we will come back again. A couple things to note here. Number one, the Bible calls Isaac a lad or a young boy. How old was Isaac? You may know. Well, I've seen those little pictures, you know. He's a little kid. He's like eight. Nope. The word lad implies somewhere between the age of 18 and 29. Isaac's a strapping young man. That matters. Hold on to that. 
So the strapping young man, it says, Abraham says, me and the boy, we're going to go over there and we're going to worship. Does anybody have a problem that Abraham calls this worship? <laughs> Does that strike anybody as odd? Does me. There is an interpretive principle in Scripture that says, if I want to know what a word means in the Bible, the best way to begin is to go find where it is first used in Scripture. The word worship first appears in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. And God says, worship at its very core is a life of willing sacrifice to the greatest one. We offer what is valuable to one who is more valuable. Worship is sacrifice. Worship is yielding. Worship is declaring what or who is most valuable. Genuine faith worships God completely. Genuine faith depends on God's ability. Abraham, how could you make a statement like, me and the boy are going to go worship, and actually says, and we're going to return to you. You know what God's telling you to do. What are you talking about? Because Abraham believed and trusted God. Trusted God to do what? Bible tells us. Hebrews 11, verse 17, gives you a commentary on this. Look at that. Here's this. This is Hebrews 11, giving you a commentary on what we're reading. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And when he had received the promise, was offering up his only begotten son. Where'd you get that idea of only begotten from? Right here, Hebrews. And he, Abraham, considered that God is able. Mark that. God is is able to do what to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type Abraham is declaring I don't know what all this means God you have made a promise that you're going to carry out through this boy even if you have to raise Isaac from the dead I trust you God that you can do it and all the way back here in Genesis chapter 22 you have a glimpse that God is able to raise the dead aren't you glad Bible goes on quickly. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son. Is there anywhere else in your Bible that the son bears the implement of his death as he walks to the place of his death? And he took in his hand, Abraham, the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. And Isaac said, now Isaac's wising up here. He's looking around. He says, hey, dad. He said, here I am, son. Uh, behold, I see the fire, and I see the wood. He's done this whole sacrifice thing before. And he says, uh, but where's the lamb? Dad, I think you forgot the sacrifice. And Abraham returns and says, God will provide for himself. Best translation is, God will provide himself, the lamb, picture of Christ, for a burnt offering so the two of them walked on together i don't know if i'm more amazed there at the faith of abraham and what god is going to do or watch this the faith of his son isaac and his dad isaac has watched his dad walk with god for now probably 20 years and abraham says i know it doesn't make sense i know there's no sacrifice i know there's no lamb god is going to provide and the bible says the two of them walked on together oh, i love that when they came to the place of which God had told them, verse 9, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. Stop right there. 
Bible says Abraham binds Isaac and lays him on the altar. Anybody remember how old Abraham is? He's a crisp 125. Anybody remember how old Isaac is? Let's average it and say he's 20. A wrestling match between 125-year-old Abraham and 20-year-old Isaac, my money's on Isaac. You know what that means? Isaac willingly laid himself on the altar. Well, it's the will of the Father. But if the Son doesn't submit to the will of the Father, it doesn't happen. Isaac submits himself to the will of the Father. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. Pictured all the way back here in Genesis 22. Abraham, we'll, we'll close quickly. A Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But, verse 11, the angel of Jehovah, the angel of the Lord. We'll talk about who this is in later, later messages. Called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am, Lord. Very responsive at this point, I would imagine. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. The faith that is in you is now on display because you've not hesitated to offer back to me that which is most valuable to you. Now I know that you love and fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, your one and only begotten son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught by a thicket in his, caught by a thicket in his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead, instead of his son. You can put in there as a substitute for his son. You see a picture of substitutionary atonement all the way back in Genesis 22. God provides one as a substitute. Pointing to the picture of Jesus. And Abraham declared and called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, translated Jehovah, the name of the Lord, Jireh, which is where we get that from, God will provide. The word provide means God will see to it beforehand, before Abraham and Isaac even began walking up the mountain, God had the provision of the ram already there waiting. God sees to it beforehand. And this passage ends with a great declaration of the greatness of the Lord. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Looking ahead to what was going to happen on Mount Moriah about 1,800 years later, archaeologists tell us that Mount Moriah is modern-day Jerusalem, looking ahead to the day that King Jesus would lay down his life in submission to the will of the Father for the sins of the world. So here we have a picture of substitution. Here we have a picture of sacrifice. Here we have a picture of atonement for sin. All the way back in Genesis chapter 22. And all of this is carried out because a man named Abraham was given faith, walked in faith, obeyed in faith, and trusted God. And the greatness of God is put on display. I'm going to ask the team just to come on up and begin to play. And just a couple takeaways and we're done. We see here all the way back in the book of Genesis that Jesus is not only the creator, that Jesus is also the sacrificial lamb. We see the picture of John crying out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see the picture of Isaiah declaring that on him the Father would lay the sins of the world. We see that pictured all the way back in Genesis 22. 
And I'll close with this verse. Pastor Mike, practically, how in the world can I walk in that kind of faith? How can I endure and carry on the faith of Abraham? Man, i got to fix my eyes on Abraham, right? Abraham, no. I'll close with this and we'll pray. Hebrews chapter 12 helps you and gives you a commentary. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, not watching us, giving us an example, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is the author. It's where your faith comes from. And he is the perfecter. He will bring it to completion as we walk in faithful communion and obedience with him. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you for this truth. I thank you for a picture of faith modeled in Abraham. Lord, I pray that we as your people will fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.